Part 3. Sunflowers. You and Shannon were walking shoulder to shoulder toward the store. We were there to pick up a few groceries for a barbecue back at the house. I was trying to catch up, lagging behind you both as usual. As I got closer, I saw the look on Shannon's face. He looked like he wanted to fight what appeared to be a random person in the parking lot. I saw you put your hand on his chest to calm him down, but the tension was palpable. The guy walking by had shaggy brown hair and a full beard. He was a real Al Borland-looking dude. Nothing happened, but I could tell something wasn't right. The guy was too old for Shannon to know from school. He seemed like someone you might work with, but why would Shannon want to fight him? Shannon was heated, and I started to pick up on some things, but you kept hushing him. I'd have to get him alone if I was going to get the scoop on this drama. That night, Shannon explained that our phones had been tapped with some kit you had gotten from Radio Shack. My mom had always been jealous, and you've often described your marriage as constantly under the microscope. She accused you of things so often that you decided to protect yourself by recording all of her calls so you could hear what she was telling people. You listened in horror when you found the conversation she was having with her friend Trish, describing the affair. The man she slept with was our neighbor's son, the same neighbors whose yard collected all of Shannon's home runs. I remember the pitcher always had to get the homers, and considering I wasn't big enough to hit it over the fence, I was always the one that had to climb into their yard. Our house was on a big hill, so the neighbor on the home run side had an elevated yard. We had a three-foot-tall brick ledge with a normal-sized fence on top of it. To a little kid, it was massive. It was equivalent to the green monster at Fenway. I'd have to climb our gate first. It was perpendicular to the fence and got me high enough to reach the top of the slats. I'd swing my leg over and start the descent into a yard full of sunflowers. Their yard seemed magical to me. The flowers were taller than I was, and their faces were bigger than my entire head. From the top of the fence, their yard was filled with vibrant yellow and orange. Once you climbed down, it was dark in between the thick green stalks and black soil. I would weave in and out of the giant flowers, quickly searching for the off-white wiffle ball. The faster I found it, the more we could play. I've always been a competitive person, but I don't care when I'm losing. I'm not competitive because I want to win, I'm competitive because I want to compete. Winning is icing on the cake, but dropping down off the fence, down another run, into a field of giant sunflowers looking for the ball my brother just crushed over here, was my happy place. It meant I was playing with my brother, it didn't matter if he was winning. When I think of the Egyptian afterlife, Aru, instead of my soul residing in a field of reeds, I picture myself looking for a baseball in that backyard. That yard, our neighbor's yard, would be forever tainted by their son. Our neighbors were an older couple who kept to themselves. I don't remember ever seeing them as I searched for baseballs in their flowers. They had a son who did home maintenance tasks. They volunteered him to do our tile floors in the house's entryway. Hiring him was a very you thing to do. It reminds me of when I dented the shit out of your truck and you hired someone at the gas station to fix it. I had taken Chuck's advice and started a lawn care company, but I was often getting called for jobs that required experience I didn't have. Unfortunately for the people who hired me, I am blessed with the willingness to try anyway. This particular job was evicting a family for not paying their rent. They were given time to pack their things, and then I was tasked with mowing the yard and cleaning out anything they left behind. I hired my friend Toad, and we borrowed your truck and rented a trailer. The trailer was extra wide, and I hadn't towed one like it before, but how hard could it be? 
When we got to the house, the driveway met the street like a T with ditches on each side. There wasn't enough space to get the truck and trailer down the driveway front first, so we decided that backing it in might be more manageable. We had smoked a few bulls on the way there, so by the time we made this decision, I knew it wouldn't be easy, but my competitive side was confident we could make it. I flipped that sucker into reverse, cut a perfect 90-degree left turn, and backed it all the way to the garage. Toad even complimented me on doing it first try. We worked our asses off to mow the entire property, loaded the trailer with the abandoned belongings, and then collapsed back into the truck. As we were pulling forward, I realized we didn't have the option of backing onto the street. I couldn't pull out of the driveway first try. I had to back up and pull forward nearly 20 times before Toad decided to jump out and guide me. He was motioning me along with his hands as I slowly pulled around the corner. My wheels were teetering on the edge of the ditch, and now the trailer was full of heavy garbage. After what felt like an eternity, we found ourselves safely back on the road. I straightened out the truck and pulled over, waiting for him to jump back in. When Toad walked up to the passenger window, I noticed the color in his face had gone away. He opened the passenger door and told me to get out and look at the truck, but I honestly couldn't imagine what it could be. Maybe someone had keyed it or accidentally opened their door into the side of it when we were parked at the hardware store. Whatever it was, I was expecting it to be relatively minor. I parked the truck and jumped out. I walked around the front and met him on the right side to see what it was. Above the wheel well was a humongous dent in the side of the truck. What the fuck is that? I yelled. What the hell happened? I don't know, dude. I didn't even notice until you had finished the turn. Maybe it happened earlier today? He asked. Fuck, maybe. But when? That's a huge dent, and we would have known something hit us. I felt so bad this happened to your truck while I had it, but I was guilt-free because I knew it wasn't my fault. I was trying to think of what could have happened, but nothing was coming to mind. That's when Toad noticed the left side of the truck. Holy shit, dude. It's over here too. His eyes were just as wide as they were when we looked at the truck's right side. I again walked around the front of the truck to see for myself. It was the exact same dent, in the exact same spot as the right side. The multiple possibilities of what had caused it became less numerous since it had happened to each side. I was the first to make the connection to the trailer. The end closest to the hitch had an extra wide bar in the front that appeared to be about the same height as each dent. I realized that the bar of the trailer must have dented the left side of the truck when we backed in and then had similarly dented the other side as we pulled out to the right at an opposite, but equally sharp, right angle. It's easy to assume it happened because I was stoned, but I don't think it's fair to rule out being an idiot. The weed didn't make us reckless, in fact, it made me super cautious. I took each turn in and out of the driveway so slowly that we didn't feel the trailer gently denting the side of the truck. Arguably, had I been sober, I probably would have only dented the left side when we heard it crunch. In hindsight, it would have made telling you a little bit easier too. I remember you being so mad when I showed you the left side. It would have been so nice not to show you the other side. It was about a month of driving around with double dents when we stopped to fill up at the Exxon by our house when the man approached you about fixing the dents. Maybe he didn't explain his process well enough, or perhaps you didn't ask enough questions, but something went horribly wrong. He first punctured the dent with something he considered a tool, and then he pulled the dent out with brute force. Next was the stuff he sprayed onto the side of the truck to fill the hole he made, but the texture was akin to something more closely resembling a popcorn ceiling, 
Finally, he sprayed his work down with a tan color like the truck. Not as tan as the truck, but tan like the truck. It's not possible you approved of the work he had done. I have to assume your pride allowed that atrocity to be the final product. Hiring our sunflower neighbors, son, was just one person in a long list of people you hired who didn't deserve to be. Part 4. Unlock the Door I don't know how many phone calls you listened to, but my mom finally placed the call. She called Trish to tell her about the tile guy working at the house and the hotel they got together. A Monica Lewinsky level of convenience, she had taken the opportunity to have an affair with someone nearby. You hadn't just fallen out of love. My mom had cheated on you. Shannon loved talking about it, and he enjoyed telling me just how awful our mother was, but you would never say anything bad about her. You couldn't explain why she was being so hateful, so you would always say, Your mother is just sick. I started to understand everything that happened as less of a betrayal and more of an inevitable circumstance of being with someone with mental health issues. The constant reassurance that everything my mother had done was simply due to some vague mental sickness made me distrust women and built the foundation for the stigma toward mental illness I would have well into adulthood. At the earliest sign of drama, or anything I could maybe see as a sign of being even just a little crazy, I'd stop trusting them. It also had the effect of making her side of the story less credible to me. By trying to avoid having a difficult conversation and trying to spare my mother the blame, you unintentionally painted her as a crazy person who couldn't control her actions. Soon, the rumors started to spread about you. They were all fabricated by my mom, but considering she was friends with all your co-workers, it made life in our hometown almost unbearable. Instead of defending yourself or spreading any rumors about her, you just took the first opportunity to transfer to Texas. I was already struggling in school and was about to fail Mr. Lugerny's math class. Shannon had also taken his class, and he was a historical asshole. He once gave me a zero for not folding my homework correctly, regardless of the answers I had written on the paper. I had reasons for moving to Texas, but leaving Mr. Lugerny's class could be the simplest of those reasons. We moved to Texas, and my mom hated me for it. When I'd return for summer break, she always had a chip on her shoulder about it, but I'd inevitably make it worse by asking her why she would have an affair. It was hard for her to explain, mostly because she was already defensive, but she also wanted me to understand that you were the one that had an affair first. Not unlike Bible camp, I had come to the summer vacation prepared to ask her the questions my brother had already answered. There was more to the story, but since she didn't want to admit her side of it yet, everything she said sounded like lies. My brother had also prepared me for what she would likely say, so I was ready for battle when those lies came. I would need to have faith in her, but I wanted proof. My mom was starting to drink more, and it got to the point that she wouldn't stop when I came to visit. There's a fine line between a cool mom who lets you drink a little bit and a mom who only lets you drink with her because she also wants to get drunk. With each visit, the time between landing at the airport and bringing up the divorce would shorten, and she'd have me back on the plane for Texas sooner each time. I remember one summer when she was spending a lot of her time at the new brewery in town every night. She would leave for work in the morning and then hit the brewery after, coming home late at night. I was constantly on the hunt for trouble as I freely roamed the city at all hours. I had an edge of bravery to my mischief because I knew I'd be on a getaway plane back to Texas at the end of the summer. My cousins were always left to suffer the consequences of anything we trashed. 
It was a late night, and I was getting into bed at my mom's house. She had still not gotten home from work, so I knew she was likely out at the brewery. I always took offense to her spending our time at the bar because she didn't have many opportunities to see me, but I had other stuff I wanted to do anyway. I could hear gravel shifting under the tires of someone's car as they pulled into my mom's driveway. I heard some laughing and talking that was too loud for non-inebriated conversation but still too muffled to decipher from inside the house. I again listened to the tires as they pulled out of the gravel driveway and a jingle of keys began scratching at the side door. My mom swung the door open and immediately started looking for a pack of cigarettes she would never find. Denver, are you home? She yelled through a bite of sliced white bread with American cheese. Yes, I yelled without moving from my bed. Drive me to the store. She hadn't asked, and she wasn't waiting for a response. I slowly dressed and moved my way out into the living room. I reminded her I didn't have a driver's license yet, but she threw me the keys anyway. I unlocked the car door and got in with just enough time to lock the doors before she could lift the handle. Unlock the door. I looked at her confused and mouthed the word. What? She relaxed her shoulders and pointed to the lock. I looked under the dash, in the glove compartment, and underneath the sun visor, but I couldn't find the door lock button. I looked over at her and shrugged my arms, trying to match her frustration. Slowly, and as close to the window as she could get, she said. Open the damn door. Wow. I said as I finally discovered the locking mechanism. The door lock pin popped up, and she attempted to open the door, but not before I could lock the doors again. She started pounding the window with her palm and yelling profanities, but I just kept acting like the mechanism was faulty. She eventually bested my timing and got the door opened. If she felt like she needed a cigarette before this, I can't imagine how she was now feeling. We didn't talk on the way to the gas station. I imagined she was still finding the strength she was asking the dear lord for after the inexplicable car lock malfunction. She got her blue pack of Marlboro menthols and then instructed me to drive out of town. She waited until we were on the interstate before saying, Denver, I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I want you to know something. When I didn't respond, she continued, I've been miserable ever since you left with your dad, and I don't have anyone anymore. I glanced over at her, and we made eye contact. She looked solemn, but I knew what was likely coming. My brother told me all the rumors she was spreading around town. She would tell people you used to beat her. She would tell people I was a little shit and hated it when I came to town. She told people you had convinced my brother and me to help you cover up your affair by dragging her through the mud. Every time I came to Montana to visit her, she'd tell me how bad of a husband you were and tried to turn me against you. I'd ask her about the tile guy, Richard, and some things my brother told me, but she'd shut the conversation down and send me back to Texas. I assumed we were about to have that conversation again. Honey, I've decided to kill myself. She left the smallest window for me to reply, but all I could do was open my mouth in shock before she continued. No, just listen, I've got it all planned out. I have life insurance at work, but they'll never give you guys the money if I commit suicide, so I have to make it look like an accident. I go camping all the time, no one would suspect a thing. I could get lost and jump off a cliff, and when they find my body, they'll just think I had fallen, and you and Shannon would get the life insurance money. What do you think? Looking back at this memory, having gone through everything I've been through, maybe it was a cry for attention just as mine was when I told my brother the same thing. Maybe she wanted me to cry and tell her how much I loved her, just as I was hoping my brother would have done for me. Then again, maybe she was just drunk and saying crazy things because she was sick. 
Her reasoning behind establishing an after-death plan inspired my own plans as I got older. Her insurance scam is what motivated me to look for a job that would kill me but leave my memory intact as a hero in the eyes of my family. She seemed so crazy to me that night, but I've grown to recognize those same feelings she was having in my depression. I know things at 37 years old that I didn't see that night at 14, and instead of understanding her plea, I took it personally and got upset. Just as I had learned from my brother when he yelled at me when I called on him for support. Why don't we just end it tonight then? I yelled at her as I let go of the wheel and let us drift onto the shoulder while on cruise control, halfway to the next town. We passed the kissing rocks that once meant we were almost to the gorge where we all used to play as a family, but now they only symbolized how much longer I'd have to be stuck in the car with a mad woman. The car started to shake as we transitioned from asphalt to the dirt and uneven edge on the side of the road. Part 5. An Unusual Glow Stop the car, Denver. She jerked the wheel back on the road, but I sat back with my arms crossed. Why, why are you grabbing the wheel if you don't want to live? Tears were streaming down my cheeks. Because I care about you, I don't want you to die too. She was hysterically crying as we sped down the highway in the middle of the night, luckily the only car on the road. I grabbed the wheel and pushed her back into her seat. I kept us on the road, but I told her, you're so full of shit, if you cared about me, you wouldn't want to die, you'd want to watch me grow up, you're just drunk. Aside from the hum of the engine, the sound of the wheels speeding down the highway, and the occasional sniffling of noses, the car was silent for the rest of the trip. I took her back home and called my friend to see if I could stay the night. Thirty minutes later, we were in his room watching the Royal Rumble he had recorded onto VHS. I didn't tell him what had happened, but he could tell I was off. Hey, D. You ever smoked weed before? He asked. I was lying on the floor watching the television. I turned around and propped myself up on my side. No. I laughed awkwardly. You want to? He sat up on the edge of his bed and started digging through his bedside nightstand. I didn't answer right away. I just thought about my mom. I know she was going through a lot, but she had done it to herself. She had an affair and broke our family up. She had lied about everything and tried to make my dad look bad to cover up her own mistakes, and now she was going to kill herself. She wanted to know if I was okay with it. Would I prefer to have her life insurance money over her life? I felt like I had an excuse for smoking weed if I got caught. I could tell you what she had said to me and what happened on the highway who would punish me for coping with it inappropriately. Maybe if I did get caught, my mom would see how big of an impact she had on me by saying that to me, and she wouldn't want to kill herself. She would get her shit together and be a better mom. I would smoke so much weed that she'd have to pick me up from the hospital, and then she'd owe me an apology. Yes, let's smoke it. He found what he was looking for, a small dark purple spoon-shaped glass pipe with light blue swirls. I don't actually have any weed. But I have this pipe, and we can scrape the resin out and smoke that," he said as he showed me the bowl. I didn't know what I was supposed to look at, but I knew this wouldn't be my Cheech and Chong moment. I watched in amazement as he took an unfolded paper clip and scraped dark black chunks of tar out of the pipe. He rolled it up into a sticky little ball and then stuffed it back into the bowl. He handed it to me with a small blue Bic lighter, but I stared at him with no idea what to do with it. He showed me how to cover the carb with my thumb while he lit the little ball. He told me to take my thumb off the hole when I had gotten some smoke in my lungs, and I did as instructed. 
It tasted like butane and ashes, and the smoke burned my lungs. I coughed uncontrollably while he smoked the same piece of resin. One hit each, and the pipe was empty. It was a little anticlimactic, and I was disappointed because I didn't even feel as if I had done anything wrong. He turned off the royal rumble, and we went to bed, but my eyes were pulled to the unusual glow of his black light. Like a moth to the flame, I stared at that black light, unblinking, for nearly a half hour straight. I was maybe twenty minutes into that staring contest when my friend pointed out that I must have gotten stoned for the first time. In hindsight, it was probably the best way to get introduced to weed if the goal was to get me hooked. It felt good, and after having the most dramatic night of my life, I could lay in bed and giggle. My mom sent me back home to Texas early, and I returned to my friends a self-proclaimed pothead, even though I had still never gotten my hands on any real herb. It's a bit of a stretch to call marijuana a gateway drug, but it did change my perception of what I was willing to try. On a spectrum of illegal substances, cigarettes are well below marijuana, so I was now capable of smoking some cigs. My new badass attitude got the hookup on some cigars, and I was supposed to pick them up from a kid at school just before classes started the next day. I had it all planned out. I packed a toothbrush, toothpaste, mouthwash, and a bottle of Febreze. We showed up to school and, very obviously, made the deal as we looked around suspiciously throughout the transaction. The cigar sat in a blue pencil box in the bottom of my bag all day long. I was so nervous that I'd get caught, and the anxiety ebbed and flowed as we moved from class to class. The longer it sat in my bag, the more the adrenaline replaced the fear and anxiety. The final bell rang, and we met at our top-secret undisclosed location, the drainage ditch directly behind our school. In Texas, it rains a lot, so deep drainage ditches separate the backyards in residential neighborhoods. Our smoking ditch was flanked by the junior high and endless rows of houses. We started smoking as soon as we got to the ditch, even though we could still see school buses picking up students and teachers were walking around. Those damn cigars had begun burning holes in our bags, and we wanted to smoke them as soon as possible. I had taken maybe five hits off it, not fully breathing in, just filling my mouth with smoke and then blowing it out, when someone's mom peeked her head over the fence. Hey, what are you kids doing back here? She yelled at us and made a move toward her back gate. We didn't wait for her. We just threw our cigars and ran in different directions. I didn't look back once. I ran through yards, jumped fences, and cut through alleys. We would have vanished from sight by the time she had gotten to her gate. There is no way that lady gave chase, but that didn't matter to me. I ran two zigzagging miles through the suburbs before taking my backpack off. Still in full stride, I slowed momentarily, just long enough to apply toothpaste to my brush before hitting top speed again. I knew how good your sense of smell was, so I attempted to bathe in Febreze, and I was surrounded by an aura of minty fresh breath. I didn't realize it then, but that would signal to you that either I had fallen in love with some girl at school, or I definitely smoked a cigar. For the next week, I waited for the other shoe to drop. I was kicking myself for having thrown the cigar in the ditch right behind the lady's house that caught us. Undoubtedly, she had taken the evidence to the school, and they had identified us by our fingerprints on the cigars. We were as good as dead. The first day back at school came and went without any punishment. Similar to hiding the cigar in my backpack all day, the growing fear and anxiety of punishment were slowly replaced with more adrenaline and excitement. Once we realized we had gotten away with it, the gateway had been opened. Cigarettes made me feel sick, but weed made me happy, and alcohol made me fearless. I was getting away with using them, 
which pumped me full of adrenaline, something I'd also get addicted to over time. About a month later, I got suspended from school for quoting Jamie Foxx from the movie Booty Call and was sent home. My shitty attitude and bad behavior had you at your wit's end, so you were ready to set me straight. A few weeks before my suspension, I was skating a parking lot gap and came up short. I was thrown forward and landed in what is known as the scorpion pose. My chest hit the ground, and my legs bent impossibly far over the back of my head. I sat up, immediately cringed at the pain, and whimpered at the sight of my collarbone, now deformed, bulging out of my chest. I was put in a sling that resembled backpack straps that were supposed to keep my shoulders back and my chest relatively immobile. Now that I was about to receive the whooping of a lifetime for getting suspended from school, you wanted to make sure that the sling was ready. You better tighten your sling, you said as you took your belt off. Why? I asked, are you going to hit me in the chest? No, I'm gonna spank you, you said to a 14-year-old boy who was too old to be spanking. You're going to spank me in the chest. I was honestly confused. I'm gonna whip your ass, and I don't want you to hurt your collarbone if you fall down. You had folded the belt in your hand, and you again motioned for me to tighten the sling. How many times are you going to hit me? I wasn't doing myself any favors. I could tell I was only making you angrier, but I was trying to buy myself some time. Until I get tired, now turn around. I was reluctant to turn around, wanting more time to negotiate, but you grabbed my arm and spun me around toward the TV in the living room. This was during the brief phase in my life when Jinko blue jeans were a thing. They were enormous pants that would cover your entire shoe. The bottoms were always torn ragged and were perpetually wet from dragging on the ground. We preferred them for skating because they were less restrictive of movement, but as I was about to learn, they also dispersed the energy from a belt, and the force wasn't enough to make contact with my body. The ineffectiveness of your blows was not only because of my thick denim shield but also due to my broken collarbone preventing you from holding me by that shoulder. You had to grab my opposite shoulder and spank me with your non-dominant left hand. Despite your intimidating threat, you only spanked my pants five times before growing tired and sending me to my room. Tears filled my eyes as I walked away. Tears of pure joy. I almost died laughing once I made it to my room. The only thing I learned from your lesson was that you were powerless to control me and were obviously in way over your head.